talk tonight about Yeoman of the Guard, which I admit really is one of my very favorite Gilbert and Solomon operettas. They're all my favorites. They're all so full of wonderful things. But Yeoman has a maturity and a richness to it that I find particularly meaningful. And I'd like to talk about that, especially in terms of arguing case. My case is that this is the English national opera. Nobody seems to want to admit it nowadays. Of course, do we need a national opera? Some nationalities have it. Smetna's Bartered Bride for the Czechs and a few others here and there. Um, maybe Peter Grimes might be hailed for the English. But long before Britain, uh, the Britons uh, were aware of what Gilbert and Sullivan offered. And in fact, um, when the first run of the Yeoman of the Guard was uh, put on, one of the newspaper critics hailed it. He said, uh, we have a genuine English opera, forerunner of many others, let us hope, and possibly significant of an advance toward a national lyric stage. In other words, this <coughs> was seen as not just a frivolous operetta entertainment. It certainly had its fun. But it was something with more depth. Uh, one has to remember uh, the point of inspiration and significant symbolism to it. Um, we're told that Gilbert got the idea for the plot when he was standing on the Uxbridge train station and saw a poster advertising uh, the Tower Furnishing Company with a picture of the tower and a bee feeder. And he got ideas that way. Uh, in, in addition, the original uh, title he first proposed for the piece was Tower Warder or Tower Warders. He was then willing to move on to the Beefeaters. And finally, of course, it became Yeoman of the Guard. But what's interesting is this symbolism. And it is um, something more than just um, a convenience, a theatrical convenience. And Sullivan himself, when Gilbert first read the plot, the script, or the draft, the initial draft, uh, reported, he said, it's a pretty story, not no topsy-turvydom, very, um, uh, very human and funny also. And funny also. <laughs> um, Sullivan, at this point, was already itching to dig more deeply into opera. He wanted to create English opera. And uh, Richard Dorley Cart, the impresario who kept the company going, the collaboration between them, um, often had to had a difficult time keeping him in yoke with Gilbert. Uh, Gilbert had to keep thinking of stories and of plots of librettos that would have a little more depth and satisfy him. Of course, eventually Sullivan did go off and produce a series of operas, uh, which is your oral household names. You've all seen them on Ivanhoe, haven't you? Uh, and several others. Uh, his mistake was that he thought he could write great theatrical music without Gilbert, and that was his mistake. But Gilbert was willing to go a good bit of distance, and in a sense, Yeoman of the Guard is the most serious of the libretti that uh, Gilbert ever wrote for Sullivan, with a depth of personality types, but also of symbolism. And this is where that first crucial word, national, comes in. I call your attention to, uh, quite early on, the song by Dame Carruthers who introduces what really is an unspoken, not, not so unspoken, very definitely spoken, protagonist. It is the tower itself. 
Dame Carruthers is the housekeeper for the tower. And she sings with the chorus, when our gallant Norman foes made our merry land their own, and the Saxons from the conqueror were flying, at his bidding it arose in its panoply of stone, a sentinel unliving and undying. Insensible, I trow, as a sentinel should be, though a queen to save her head should come a-suing. There's a legend on its brow that is eloquent to me, and it tells of duty done and duty doing. And then as if the tower speaks, the screw may twist and the rack may turn, and men may bleed and men may burn, or London town and its golden hoard, I keep my silent watch and ward. And she goes on within its wall of rock, the flower of its brave have perished to the constancy unshaken. From the dungeon to the block, from the scaffold to the grave, is a journey many gallant hearts have taken, and the wicked flames may hiss round the heroes who have fought for conscience and for home in all its beauty. But the grim old Fortalice takes little heed of aught that comes not in the measure of its duty. And again the tower says, the screw may twist, and the rack may turn, and men may bleed, and men may burn, or London town and its folded board. I keep my silent watch and ward. The uh, symbolism of the tower is matched by a seriousness, uh, a degree of seriousness in the piece as a whole that's relatively unusual in Gilbert and Sullivan collaborations. Now, they called their pieces operas. They spoke of them, they used the term the Savoy operas. Uh, they didn't see them as operettas, even though, of course, they were much more in line with Offenbach than with Verdi. Uh, but they understood they were working on a fairly substantial high level musically. Sullivan's writing is remarkably solid. Uh, in fact, all too often, Sullivan's contribution is underestimated. Uh, he was a consummate musician and a very imaginative and bold composer. Uh, and his musical dimension uh, is the equal of Gilbert's verbal brilliance. And that's, of course, part of the remarkable achievement they made, the matching of those two talents. But simply consider the characteristics of the piece as an opera. For one thing, to, at the very, very beginning, uh, it has one of the very few of the Savoy Opera's overtures that Sullivan himself composed. Usually what he would do is block out the tunes from the score that he wanted used and then hand it over to one of his assistants, Sellier, or one of the others who would put together the overtures. So that a large percentage, I forgot the precise number, uh, but well over half of the overtures uh, that we hear with the operettas uh, are not uh, in that form by Sullivan himself. But the overture to Tower, uh, to uh, Yeoman of the Guards is, and he was very careful about it. He put it together in a very solid, uh, substantial way. And that tells, if you listen to it, as a piece in its own terms. Now. Uh, Sullivan worked in the world of opera, and um, he and Gilbert had the idea that uh, a lot of the numbers they did could be spoofs. Very often there's a lot of satire of opera of the day, especially Italian opera, Lucia, Verdi, and so forth. And if your ears are sharp, you can say, oh, you know what he's spoofing there. Uh, or Weber, Weber's Der Freischutz. There are a lot of, what should we say, music, musical if not satire, at least parody, that for the audience of their day would be recognizable for uh, well-educated listeners or well-educated ears. Uh, they could even 
appropriate a little bit, not just spoof things. Uh, critics pointed out uh, that um, one of the main lines of the plot, the idea of a young girl who agrees to marry sight unseen uh, and a prisoner who's about to die is in fact uh, a theme in an earlier English opera by William Wallace, Maritana. And uh, I'm sure Gilbert was aware of what he was doing when he made it a much better plot in itself. He talked uh, of, of uh, Yeoman as a new leaf. Uh, they'd gone through a series of ups and downs, and their collaboration, of course, was always bumpy and uneven. Uh, Sullivan chafed a good bit. His health was bad. He wanted to go on and accomplish grander things, always felt that these were frivolities, these operettas he was writing. Um, and he and Gilbert, Gilbert certainly stressed the idea that they were going to go on to a higher level and uh, with new dimensions. Well, you can see uh, and appreciate those new dimensions in Yeoman. Just consider some of the characters. All too often we think of Gilbert and Sullivan characters as the sort of stock situation, the rather empty-headed tenor, uh, the silly soprano, the two that are in love, plus uh, the love-starved contralto, uh, there's a baritone or two, there's the funny little man who sings the, pa the patter songs, of course, that's basic. Usually the patter song man gets the love-starved contralto at the end. <laughs> There are certain stereotypes. Uh, Anna Russell did once a skit on how to write your own Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. It's essentially based on Pinafore, which has the most simplistic of all of the Gilbert and Sullivan plots. Well, just consider you have, you do have a tenor, and he's a very uh, interesting character. Uh, he is heroic, but he's also capable of uh, finagling and manipulation. Uh, and soliloquizing as well. We have not one, but two romantic sopranos. The part of Phoebe uh, was written for Jesse Bond, who is one of the favorite singers of the uh, Savoy Company. Uh, and she's, what, a love star soprano. Uh, we have a love star of contralto, Dame Carruthers, so we've got a full complement uh, of the normal. But um, we've got two love star characters. Who's going to get somebody at the end. Well, that's an interesting working out of the plot, too. Uh, we have a dark comic character, Wilfred Shadbolt, uh, the uh, assistant jailer and chief, chief tormentor. Uh, he's a nasty fellow. He imagines he's got a sense of humor, can even be a jester if he tries. Um, he's the closest predecessor he has is Dick Deadeye in Pinafore, who's really just a minor player, but Shetland is a grim presence, and he gets the love star of Soprano at the end, and you might feel just a little unhappy for her over that. Um, you, you also have um, the Pattersong Man. Who is the Pattersong Man? Jack Point. Jack Point not only doesn't get anybody at the end, he loses the other Soprano, but he's obliterated. The last stage instruction is that he falls insensible at the end, and that's usually construed to mean he drops dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not what patter singers usually end up with in Gilbert Sullivan uh, casts. Uh, it's a much more serious elaboration on the kinds of character types uh, that can be had. Uh, there can also be. Um, 
even for the main characters, a degree of introspection and thoughtfulness that's quite remarkable. For example, consider um, uh, uh, Fairfax, the tenor, who in the first act is, of course, condemned to death unfairly. Um, he's about to be beheaded. Uh, and we first meet him in prison, in his dungeon, where he's soliloquizing. And this is all but an opera aria in the best sense. It isn't just a funny song. He contemplates life. He's a man facing death. And what does a man facing death think about life? Is life a boon? If so, it must befall that death, whene'er he call, must call too soon. Though fourscore years he give, yet one would pray to live another moon. What kind of plaint have I, who perish in July? I might have had to die, perchance, in June. <laughs> is life a thorn? Then count it not a wit. Man is well done with it. Soon as he's born, he should all means essay to put the plague away. And I, war-worn, poor captured fugitive, my life most gladly give. I might have had to live another morn. Uh, think about that. Every once in a while, Gilbert comes up with some lyrics that really make you stop and think, this isn't just funny music. This is real reflection and thoughtfulness. What is it life to face death and consider what life is all about? Um, another um, standard item in Gilbert and Sullivan um, shows is a madrigal. This, of course, started out from the beginning as a kind of um, jolly parody of a standard English form, fa-la-la, all that. You get four of the singers and the cast together, and they stop the action and sort of sing, we must, we must be merry, we must be merry. The richest of them, of course, is in Rudigore, uh, the immediate predecessor to Yeoman, uh, in which the chorus is involved. And it's a wonderfully rich reflection on the seasons. The one in uh, the Yeoman, however, is very interesting. It's just got four singers, one of them a character whose only function, in effect, is to sing in the, the mandrigal. And it reflects on the heroine, Rose Maybud, who has uh, married, without seeing him, uh, this prisoner who's about to die. And what a strange marriage this must be. What must a woman think when she's marrying this way? And so they sing this. Uh, madrigal, which is really a very serious madrigal. I'm always a little impatient with directors who think madrigals always have to be made funny. Uh, you do that at the peril uh, of destroying the point of both librettist and composer. Uh, and there's a line in here that tempts directors sometimes to make this uh, a silly piece. It's not a silly piece, as these four reflect on this strange marriage that Rose Maybud had to make to the condemned Fairfax. Strange adventure, maiden wedded to a groom she's never seen. Never, never, never seen. Groom about to be beheaded in an hour on Tower Green. Tower, tower, tower green. Groom in dreary dungeon lying. Groom as dead, as good as dead or dying. For a pit, pretty maiden sighing. Pretty maid of 17. Seven, seven, 17. Strange adventure that we <coughs> modest maid and gallant groom, gallant, gallant, gallant groom, while the funeral bell is tolling, 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 bima boom, bima, bima, bima boom. 
Modest maiden will not tarry, though but sixteen years she carry. She must marry, she must marry, though the altar be a tomb. Tower, 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 tomb. That line, bim boom always makes directors say, oh, that's just funny stuff. But audiences, too, attempted to react that way. It's not. It's a beautiful reflection on the seriousness of one of the key elements of the plot. But for me, perhaps the most important aspect of denotes its seriousness and the substance of its score is the intensified use of chorus. Chorus was always an important part, almost a protagonist itself, sometimes a double protagonist, the girls on one side, the boys on the other. Um, and Sullivan himself was an experienced church composer who knew how to write for chorus, was very, very able in it. Uh, in fact, every once in a while, he comes off with a choral number that just knocks your socks off. It's so beautiful. Well, he does that repeatedly in Yeoman. Uh, and of course, he does it in a reverse way from what you expect at the outset. Almost invariably, virtually every, every Gilbert Sullivan operetta begins with an opening chorus, the scene where the chorus comes out and marches around or does something that sets the situation. Uh, that's not the case in Yeoman. It begins with a solo. Phoebe, the love star of Soprano, who sings a serious song uh, at the very, very opening, and then only after she's sung does the crowd come on, and the crowd in the form of a double chorus. This is a production that really requires good choral resources, because at the outset, in this introductory scene, uh, you have the townsfolk, a mixed chorus, uh, who sing with excitement about the yeoman coming, on, coming out onto the green. And you have the yeoman themselves, a male chorus. And you've got to have strong forces for both. And uh, after the crowd of uh, uh, people have acclaimed this, these tower warders and all their, their gallant, gallant pikemen, valiant sworders, uh, remember, of course, that these yeomen are retired soldiers a tradition that goes back at least to the 16th century when the plot is supposed to be set, um, was that uh, uh, soldiers, veterans who'd served a long career in arms uh, could be allowed to take on this uh, ceremonial duty as guards at the tower. Now, of course, in the 16th century, the tower needed guards, considering some of the, the, the occupants there. Uh, more and more, it certainly it is today, it was a ceremonial honorific. It was an honor for a veteran to be a part of the yeoman. And it was a purely ceremonial duty. Uh, but these, the point is, these are retirees. How many people here are retired? <laughs> <laughs> What's it feel like? What's it feel like to be retired? Well, uh, one of the ways you can feel it is to sing the chorus when the yeomen themselves appear. And uh, one of the most moving experiences I've had in my life is to be in that yeoman chorus and sing these lines to an absolutely glorious melody. In the autumn of our life, here at rest in ample clover, we rejoice in telling over our impetuous May and June. In the evening of our day, with the sun of life declining, we recall without repining all the heat of bygone noon. And then one of the yeomen has a solo this the autumn of our life, this the evening of our day. Weary we of battle strife, weary we of mortal fray. But our year is not so spent, and our days are not so faded, but that we with one consent were our loved land invaded, 
still would face a foreign foe as in days of long ago. And then they repeat the, uh, their strain in the autumn of our life while the townsfolk dance around them in their part. It's a double chorus at that point. It's a wonderful evocation of the autumn of life, musically as well as, as verbally. And I think it's a, an example of what you can hear in this. There are so many other points in which the chorus, usually the yeoman, but also townsfolk as well, um, interject. Uh, the uh, segment when Fairfax is supposed to be executed, and he's supposed to be brought out to the block. It's an extraordinarily powerful, moving little funeral march elegy. Of course, it turns out he's not there to be brought out because he's been rescued. But um, throughout the piece, the chorus is there, and the chorus contributes. The chorus, like the tower, is a protagonist that brings weight and depth to this. So what I'd suggest, as if you're involved in the preparation of the production, if you simply go to see it and enjoy it, savor what is more than just the usual entertainment of Gilbert and Sullivan. Gilbert and Sullivan can give you things to think about here and there. I always love uh, in Patience, this, this uh, silly bubble-headed Patience, who comes out in the second act and sings how love is a fraud. It's all for the men. It's all for the men. Women get nothing. They have to do things for the men. And you stop and think, holy Moses, did Gilbert have a vision of the 20th century? <laughs> there are moments like that throughout Gilbert himself. But there are more than their share in uh, Yeoman of the Guard. And at the end, when well, has happiness come? The soprano and the tenor are united happily. Uh, Phoebe's stuck with Shadbolt. <laughs> and Jack Point has nothing. Is this your usual happy, 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 everything's turned out fine finale for Gilbert Sullivan? No, it gives you thought. It leaves you not with a bubbly feeling. It leaves you with a, uh, a feeling of enrichment. And after all, what is a work of art supposed to do? This is a work of art. This is a work of serious theater. It is a work the English should be proud of, must be proud of, uh, as in many ways I think are. Well, those were the points I wanted to make. Uh,